Paul's letter to the Romans. It's one of the longest and most significant things ever written by the man who was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jewish rabbi belonging to a group known as the Pharisees, and he was passionate and devout to the Torah of Moses and the traditions of Israel. And he saw Jesus and his followers as a threat. But then he had a radical encounter with the risen Jesus, who commissioned him as an apostle, like an official representative, to the world of non-Jewish people called Gentiles in the Bible. And so he started going by his Roman name, Paul, and he traveled all around the ancient Roman Empire, telling people about the risen King Jesus, and forming his followers then into these new communities called churches. And Paul would occasionally write letters to these new Jesus communities to help them foster their faith or answer questions, and the book of Romans is one of these. It was actually written quite late in his career. Now, we know from the book of Acts that the church in Rome had existed for some time, that it was made up of Jewish and non-Jewish followers of Jesus. But at one point, the Roman emperor Claudius had expelled all of the Jewish people from Rome. And then about five years later, all of those Jews, including Jesus-following Jews, were allowed to return. And when they did, they found a church that had become very non-Jewish in custom and practice. And so this created lots of tension, so that by Paul's day, the Roman church was divided. People disagreed about how to follow Jesus. They were debating about whether non-Jewish Christians should celebrate the Sabbath or eat kosher or be circumcised. And so Paul wrote this letter to accomplish a few things. He wanted this divided church to become unified and for a practical purpose. He was hoping that the Roman church could become a staging ground for his mission to go even further west all the way to Spain. And so these circumstances are what motivated Paul to write out his fullest explanation of the gospel, the good news that he was announcing about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Do you really know what it means when you say that you've been saved? And maybe more importantly, do you understand not only what it is we're saved from, but what it is we are saved for? Most of us tend to focus more on being saved from our sins. And when we do that, we, we kind of turn our faith into this purely spiritual internal exercise that's all about avoiding the judgment of God. And, and as a result of that, a lot of people tend to think that like if you live a good enough life, if you're a faithful Christian, then everything's easy in the end, right? You die, you go to heaven, everything's good. You, you get to skip the line, right? It's like you got your fast pass at Six Flags. But what if, what if Christians actually don't avoid judgment? What if we had to stand before the judgment seat of God just like everybody else and give an accounting of our lives? You know, the world tends to believe that we judge ourselves. Right? Ultimately, we answer to ourselves and no one else. And, and 
As a result, most people in the world would say that the main criteria to judge your life by is whether or not you're happy. So you have Christians on one extreme saying the only thing that matters is that if you have faith, you're fine, you can just skip judgment altogether. On the other hand, you have non-Christians saying that actually all that matters is that you're happy and you judge yourself to be happy. But it's actually God who is the ultimate judge. And therefore, it's God's assessment of how we lived our lives that really matters and is the only one that matters. When Paul wrote to the Romans, he, he, this is his magnum opus. This is like his grand work. It is the longest, most thorough thing he wrote precisely because he was writing to a church he had never been to before. All his other letters are to churches that he planted. So we can assume he's actually, like all the things he's explaining in Romans, to those other churches, he probably told them all this stuff in person. We don't know who planted the church in Rome. That's a mystery. We've got no idea who started that church. All we know is it existed, and Paul wanted to go visit it, but he had never been there before. He'd never talked to them before. He'd never preached to them before. So what you get in this book is in the first 11 chapters, you have Paul explaining the gospel, and then in the remaining chapters, he says, and this is how you apply it to your life. It is, you're, if you're reading along in our one-year Bible reading plan, you're, you know this is a really dense dense book. There's a lot going on. And, and man, pastors and theologians have, have dug into this book and debated it and written on it for millennia now because there is so much material in there to mine and get out of it. And, and, and this book, more than anything outside of the Gospels in the New Testament, has shaped Christian thought and theology to an unprecedented... It's, it's just incredible how much of what we believe we pull straight out of Romans, but it's so challenging to read, and I'm going to try and preach on the whole book in two weeks. So, good luck. Uh, I'm going to talk about just the first 11 chapters today, the gospel according to Paul. And so, you're going to have a lot of scripture thrown at you over the whole sermon. Just be ready. We're going to start in chapter 1. Probably, maybe two of the most famous verses from the whole book. Chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The first thing to take away from this is that Paul is writing a letter about God and not about us. Very often we read the book and we try and figure out, like, what is Paul talking about? How do, what is, how do I become righteous? But that's not what the letter's about. The letter is about God's righteousness, God's faithfulness. And whenever Paul refers to righteousness or faithfulness, he's talking not, not in a broad sense about God's character or anything like that, but, but he's talking specifically about how faithful God is to the covenant he established with his people. That's what God's righteousness is. And this last little bit of verse 17, the righteous will live by faith, is a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And the prophet Habakkuk is writing to a people living under uh, deep oppression and great suffering. And the, the specific problem he's trying to address is that in his day and age, the people of Israel are beginning to doubt that God will be faithful to uphold the covenant he's made with them. 
they're looking at the world around them, they're looking at the, what's going on in their lives and the oppression and the suffering that they are undergoing, and they're thinking, are we really so sure that God's going to get us out of it this time? And, and Habakkuk's message is, to be righteous means to trust that God will uphold his covenant and fulfill his promises. Even when the world is falling apart around you and you can't possibly see what God is up to. And it looks as though God has abandoned you. Righteousness looks in that moment like being faithful even when all the signs point in the other direction. This is how Paul begins his explanation of the gospel. That righteousness on God's part is being faithful to the covenant he established with his people. And that we respond to God's faithfulness with our own faithfulness. Faith and righteousness for us means trusting that God will fulfill his promises. That's his starting point. But what he's really doing in these two verses is he's, he's not so much describing what the gospel is, he's talking about what the gospel does. He's explaining the effect of the gospel. When the gospel is preached, God's power goes to work and people are saved. He's looking at the action, what God does in response to the proclamation of the gospel. And it's all about what God is doing. Paul says, I preach the gospel and then God goes to work. So now we're going to skip ahead to chapter 2. And, and teachers and preachers usually skip over this chapter and go right into chapter 3. And in doing so, they miss something really important about what Paul is doing. So I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead to your repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. 
So there's two reasons people skip over this. One, because it talks a lot about law and judgment, and we don't like that. But two, because it says something that makes most people, especially in Protestant churches, immediately clam up. It, it talks about things like being repaid according to what you have done. And, and, and Jesus looking at your actions. Right? He's, he's very clearly talking about sort of this, this final day of judgment. When Jesus returns and everyone stands before the judgment seat. And there's this weird thing because elsewhere he always insists that salvation is by faith through grace alone. And yet here he's saying, but Jesus is going to look at your actions and judge you based on that. And that makes us kind of cringe. So we know that we will all stand before God in judgment, but we've also been told over and over and over again that we cannot in any way earn our salvation. So what's Paul doing? Well, first he says this, the ones that God declares righteous are not the ones who know the law, but the ones who do the law. Again, he's He's zeroing in on, on how people live their lives and what they do as an important criteria that God is going to judge us on. But this is not works righteousness. This is not earning your salvation. Paul is not using the logic of merit here. He's not saying you've got to do enough good deeds to earn your way in, to, to outweigh all the bad you've done. This is the logic of of love. The things you do when you obey the law are done to please God because you love God. We do this in, in all of our human relationships when the person matters to us. Right? We do it in marriages, right? In a marriage you have to do things for your spouse to, to demonstrate your love to maintain the relationship, right? I hate cleaning. You can ask my wife. I'm bad at it. I don't like it. it the, on the list of things I don't want to do, cleaning is, there are so many things I would rather do that are not cleaning. It's my least favorite way to spend my time, by far. Unfortunately, my wife cannot stand having a dirty house. And for the last year, I've been working from home because we're waiting for a daycare spot to open up for our daughter, which means the house is more dirty than usual, and I'm the only one home to take care of it. <laughs> it's a perfect storm. Right. And so eventually I realized I had to start cleaning more. And so now, about an hour before I know she's going to get home, I, I wrap up whatever I'm doing. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> I wrap up whatever I'm doing, right, and I go and I you know, make sure the, the dishes are clean, the kitchen's tidied up, vacuum. We have a 73-pound dog with lots of white hair that sheds everywhere, so we vacuum all the dog hair up. Right? Try and pick up some of my daughter's toys so there's not as much of a mess. Now, I, I don't like doing that. But I, I like knowing that my wife will come home to a clean house and then that will make her day easier. And if she's had a hard day, coming home will be a, a breath of fresh air for her. And I'll be the first to admit that I am very often tempted to try and like earn husband points for this, right? Like, <laughs> look what I did! So clean. Right. And then she tells me how I cleaned it wrong. <laughs> but, but that's the wrong approach. 
Because it's not about earning points or, or, or like stacking up some sort of bank of husband credit I can use to get out of trouble later on, which we all know I'll need, right? It, it's, it's just about demonstrating my love for my wife. We do it as kids with our parents too, right? How many times if, when you were growing up did your parents tell you, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed? And that was worse than them being mad, and I can't wait to use it on my kid one day. It's going to be great. But the reason that that stings so much is because we want to live up to our parents' expectations. We want to show them that we love them by meeting those expectations. Obviously, we can take that too far in in unhealthy directions, but that still is a desire to, to demonstrate our love for our parents through our actions. The same thing should be true of God. Love produces action. Period. The gospel is not about merit. It's not about earning anything or being good enough. It is about God's love and how we respond to God's love. And God even gives us an assist because God doesn't expect us to do this alone on our own power. He he sends the Holy Spirit to empower us, and the more the Spirit works in us, the more we are stirred up to do good works. One of my favorite authors and theologians, uh, N.T. Wright, says it like this. Sin is what bubbles up unbidden from the depths of the human heart, so that all one has to do is go with the flow. This has the appearance of freedom, but is, in fact, slavery. True freedom is the gift of the Spirit, the result of grace, but precisely because it is freedom for as well as freedom from. It isn't simply a matter of being forced to be good against our will and without our cooperation, but it's a matter of being released from slavery into responsibility, knowing both that you are doing it yourself and that the Spirit is at work within. We work together with God, but we must work. That's what Paul is saying in this long section on judgment. It's not about earning your salvation. It's about making sure that your life actually reflects the love you say you have in God. In, in the book of James, he'll say it differently, right? He'll say, show me faith without works, and I've by my works will show you my faith, right? He says faith without works is dead, not because you have to do good works to earn your salvation, but because if your faith is real, it will produce good works. But Paul is going to keep elaborating. So in chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, he says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. 
He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify this law by faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Are you confused yet? It seems like he's doing a complete about face, right? He's just said how important it is that you do good works and that you demonstrate your love through, through God, through action, and that your actions are how God will judge you. And then he comes on and says, but you're going to be justified by faith alone. In reality, he's talking about two separate moments. If, if chapter 2 is about this moment of, of future judgment when Jesus comes back and we all stand before the judgment seat and give an accounting of our lives, chapter 3 is about how God judges us here and now. Here and now we are justified by faith through grace alone. If we have faith in God, if we trust in God to uphold his covenant, even when it seems like the world is falling apart around us, that's all we need to be declared righteous before God right now. And in that moment, God sends the Holy Spirit into us. And in chapter 8, he begins putting the pieces of all this together. So in chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So a couple of notes here. Very often when we hear Paul contrasting the flesh and the spirit, we think he's talking about like our physical bodies versus our souls. No. The flesh is just us and the spirit is the Holy Spirit. In every one of his letters, that's how it goes. And people misinterpret this all the time because they hear spirit and think soul and they think he's contrasting two things at war within us. But it's not that. It's us versus God. You're either living by our worldly human desires or you are living by what God wants. You're living by, by the mind of the world or you're being guided by the will of God. That's what he's saying. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you have nothing. And this links these two moments, this moment where we are justified by faith right now and the moment where we have to stand before God in judgment because it's the Spirit who empowers us 
to live the way God wants us to live. When we're declared righteous right here and now, the Spirit enters into us and empowers us and motivates us to do good works. It gives us strength beyond our own to live as God calls us to live so that we can be declared righteous at the end of all things. Our faith right now justifies us before God. And then the Holy Spirit helps us to work for the glory of God and the good of the kingdom so that our love for God is made manifest in our actions so that we will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, when we are asked to give an accounting of our lives. That's what Paul is doing. He's laying out not just how we get set right with God right here and now, but how we then have to continue on in the faith for the rest of our lives. It's not enough. It's not enough to just say that we believe and show up to church on Sundays and think everything is good. You have to cooperate with God. You have to work with the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit works in you. Methodists call this sanctification. It just means being made holy. Striving to be more and more like Christ with each and every day. If we're not doing that, then our faith can rightly be called into question. If it is not evident by the way that we live our lives that there is something different about us from the world around us, then people are right to doubt us when we say that we are Christian. Paul gives another image of this as he's wrapping up uh, chapter 11. Starting in verse 17, he's got this great metaphor he's using. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will then say branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut, off, cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Now he's using a metaphor that people in his day and age would have understood like that because it was really common in the ancient world if you had an olive grove that you were growing and one of your trees was dying or not producing enough fruit, to go out into the wilderness and find a wild tree, cut branches off of that, and graft them on to your dying tree as a way of reinvigorating that tree. Now, I don't know enough about botany to know if that actually works or not, but we know it was a really common practice. The idea was that something about that wild branch would reinvigorate the, the domestic tree and, and the sap from the domestic tree would get into the wild branch and it would produce more and better fruit than it would have if it had remained on the wild tree. 
So obviously he's talking to the Gentiles in Rome about the, the, the Jewish roots of their faith and saying, look, some of the Jewish people did not believe and they've been cut off and you've been grafted on in their place, but don't get cocky because if God cut them off, you better believe he'll do it to you too, right? There's, there's a lot of hope there, right? You've been grafted onto the family tree of Israel. You are now one of Abraham's descendants. But there's a warning in that Paul is saying, this is not a guarantee of anything. You have to do the work. You have to persist in faithfulness. You have to remain righteous and holy. And you have to do the work. That's the part of the message we don't like to hear. That sometimes that, that, that we can like stop being faithful. And if we do, we have to start wondering, is God going to cut me off the tree? Not because God is mean or, or cruel, but because God cares how you live your life. It's not enough to say you're a Christian, to say you believe in Jesus and show up to church and then live the rest of your life as if nothing is different about you. It doesn't work like that. So this, this is how Paul sees the gospel. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament. He even says in 2 Corinthians, all God's promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. So all the stuff that God promised in the Old Testament, the whole covenant he made with Israel has been fulfilled in Jesus. That's all done with. And now Jesus is starting a new thing. But because of Jesus, we can see that God has kept every promise he's ever made. God is faithful and God is righteous. And in Jesus, he's demonstrated that. And now God is joyfully adding new branches onto Israel's family tree. And all that's required for us to be justified before God is faith in a God who has proved beyond all doubt he keeps his promises anyway. But once we have been grafted on to Israel's family tree, we've got to produce fruit. Once we've been brought in, we have to do something. Love produces action. If there's no action, there's no love. If I refuse to do things for my wife that make her happy, I can't say that I love my wife. Plain and simple. Right? If I refuse to do things that please God, I can't then say that I love God. That's how it works. And God does not expect us to do this alone. He empowers us and guides us through the Holy Spirit. It's a cheat code. You don't have to rely on your own power. He's giving you a leg up. And it's that work with the Spirit that, that enables us to remain righteous, to remain justified before God. Not because we have to be perfect or because we can't make a mistake, but precisely because God knows we're going to sin and he knows we're going to make mistakes and all he asks of us is that we keep trying to be better, that we keep trying to demonstrate our devotion to his will, to his goodness, to his love, to respond to his love with love of our own. In other words, for Paul, faith is not passive. Faith is, is not internal or private. Faith is active 
And it is not enough to merely believe. And it's not just Paul who says that. All of the apostles will say the same thing. James will even go so far as to say, yeah, you, you believe in God. That's great. Even the demons believe in God and tremble in fear. So what are you doing to make you different from them? Jesus, Jesus does not demand that we change or improve before we come to him. We have to be clear on that. Jesus welcomes us with open arms as we are right now, wherever we are. There is no expectation that you, you hit any sort of bar, any sort of standard before you can come to Jesus, before you can be saved. He welcomes us with open arms into this new covenant he has established that is open to all people, but, but we are expected to respond to his gift of grace and salvation appropriately. And that's what love is. Love is not about taking and taking and taking. Love is about responding and giving and sacrificing. And God has shown us time and time again that he is unerringly faithful to the promises he's made. He's faithful to us time and time again. He upholds and fulfills every promise that he's made to his people. And his promise has always been at the core that he is coming to rescue us from the results of the fall. Our righteousness and our salvation doesn't hinge on perfection or purity or making sure we keep all the rules really strictly. That's not what it's about. It's only about whether or not we respond to God's gift with love. That's it. And no matter what you say, no matter what you think, that response is evident in the way we live our lives. We can't hide it. What Paul is doing in Romans is first making it clear to people, look, this isn't about whether you follow the right rules. It isn't even about whether you believe the right things. It's about whether you love God back or not. That's the first thing. That's the most important thing. And everything else will flow from that. And that is the gospel according to Paul. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.